Hello and welcome to another installment of The Weird Chronicles. Each episode, we bring you tales of action and adventure from Malifaux and the other side. On today's episode, we catch up with Molly Squidpidge and the severed head of Philip Toomers. Both are very dead, but in Malifaux, death doesn't necessarily stop a person from having ambitions, desires and resentments. I hope you enjoy There's Something About Molly. There's Something About Molly by Graham Stevenson She sat despondently on the crate, knees together, feet splayed, head in hands. A few paces away, beyond the mouth of the alley, The world continued to turn. Horses and carts rumbled over the cobbles. Gaggles of servant girls jostled and shrieked over gossip on their way to work. Hawkers with barrows and baskets cried out their wares of flowers, fresh bread, roasted nuts, and a hundred other things to entice the passing commuters. Molly watched the flow of life and purpose, uncomfortably aware that she possessed neither. This hadn't always been the case, but it was getting difficult to remember her life before. Well, before it ended. There were certain moments that still shone brightly in her memory, sparkling gems that reminded her of who she had once been. However, these moments were few and far between now, like stars in a cloudy night sky. And one by one, those stars were going out. It was an unpleasant realisation, but there might come a day when Molly had no memory of ever having lived at all. Ah, said a muffled voice. Chestnuts, I used to love them so. Molly had forgotten about Philip. She lifted the velvet bag and sat it on her knees, opening the drawstring and lifting out the mottled head. I didn't know you liked chestnuts, she said. Oh, yes. Philip would probably have nodded, given the chance. Freshly roasted, still piping hot from the coals. Especially on cold nights. The severed head smacked his lips. Molly would have offered to pilfer him a handful, were it not for the need to clean semi-masticated chestnut paste out of the bottom of the bag later. I used to like lemon cakes, she said wistfully. Those little round ones with the icing sugar on top, and a little curl of rind. Never was one for confection, Philip mused. Rots the teeth. Molly could remember the bakery she used to go to on the corner of White Arch Lane. They mostly sold bread, but they had a cake stand in one corner of the counter that the baker's wife used to populate each morning. They were simple recipes, but light and tasty, and always sold out by mid-morning. Molly would always make a point of detouring there early on her way to... to... she had forgotten. She realised that she was stroking Philip's head absently, but he didn't seem to mind. Didn't Seamus tell you to go and wait for him by the library? Toomers inquired presently. He did. Molly could feel the compulsion in her, trying to haul her to her feet and usher her toward the huge grey building but it was held in check by another part of her that refused, a part that had been growing gradually stronger. 
She had always harboured a secret loathing for the Hatter and what he had done to her. But she had been bound to obey his will by the same dark powers that had brought her back from oblivion. Before, disobeying or even postponing one of Seamus's commands would have been unthinkable, impossible. Yet here she sat, petting Philip and musing on her lot. Don't you think you should go? prompted Tumas. Instead, she dropped the head back into its bag and got to her feet. At the mouth of the alley, she hovered for a moment. The library was to the east. She turned west. Seamus lifted his oversized hat and drew a linen kerchief across his brow. Mercy sakes, but she's a hot one, he said. The weather had been unseasonably humid for several weeks, and a hazy cloud of vapour hung over the entire city, turning its black stone spires into translucent strips of gauze. Although the sun wasn't visible through the haze, its heat was like an oppressive weight across the citizenry's shoulders. There had been no wind for days. Moisture trickled down every pane of glass, and clothes clung to bodies in a most uncomfortable manner. He looked again. Still no sign of Molly. Where is that blasted girl? He wondered aloud, fingering the faint scar in the centre of his forehead through the kerchief. The rotten bell at his elbow made no comment. Her face had turned a disturbing guacamole colour, even through the pancaked face powder, and there was a ripe, fecund stench permeating her perfume. This heat was not conducive to good necromancy. Wait here, I tells her. Seamus continued. Here, I says, not there, but here. And where is she? I ask you. Nowhere to be seen, that's where. The truth of the matter was that Seamus had found Molly an increasingly capable lieutenant in recent months, despite his tendency to berate and belittle her suggestions, which he would implement at a later date when the credit could be claimed as his own. Something he had been slower to spot was Molly's efficiency in relaying his orders, and he needed that efficiency now. When he gave instructions to his bells, they tended to be rather haphazard in their execution, and it was as much fortune as planning that yielded positive results most of the time. Relaying those instructions through Molly, however, consistently ensured a better resolution. He hadn't managed to put his finger on why that was, but there was definitely something about the way she interfaced with the bells. Well, with all his projects, truth be told, almost as if they were listening to her more closely or were able to garner more from her instructions. She had her finger on the pulse of his undead subordinates, if the pun could be pardoned. They just worked better when she was involved. This was why the sweat that was sticking his shirt to his shoulders was not generated solely by the furnace-like midday heat. He was genuinely nervous, though he'd never admit it. Damn that girl, he said stuffing the damp kerchief back in his coat pocket. His plan was simple enough. The armoured wagon would pull up outside the bank in about five minutes' time. They'd pick up the gold dust and gems brought in by prospectors and drop off a remittance of newly minted scrip for the labourer wages due on Friday. Seamus was going to relieve them of both. After all, he had several projects in various stages of development back in the quarantine zone, and funding for illegal experimentation didn't grow on trees. 
from his vantage point across the street, in the alley between the city library and a shipping merchant headquarters, Seamus had an uninterrupted view of the Forbes and Clark Municipal Assurance Company and the street for a hundred yards in either direction of it. He had bells down the alleys on either side of the bank building, a few more dallying on the street with parasols to hide their unfortunate complexions in daylight and Seamus's secret weapon. He grinned at the thought of it. Assuming things went to plan, one of the doxies would get the keys to the wagon from the dead guard and they'd clean the thing out while the others were helping themselves to the vault. Seamus had calculated there was always a chance that the keys might be lost in the confusion, and all this risk was pointless if there was no reward. So he had engineered a little something extra, just in case. A heavy-looking wagon with eight wheels and six frothy Clydesdale horses came around the corner. It was made of dense hardwood and lacquered black, lined with iron rivets and iron sheeting on the underside and flanks, even the wheels and axles were strengthened with iron. As it turned the corner, he saw the guild insignia blazoned arrogantly across the flank. Short time, ladies, Seamus said, resettling his hat. And remember, smile. He was there as always. Molly was hovering amid a collection of freight containers piled outside a warehouse, swinging her parasol and doing her best to look inconspicuous, which can be a difficult ambience to strike when one is an undead woman wearing a blood-stained orange silk dress with a severed head in a bag, lingering around a dockyard full of sweating, cursing labourers. She did her best under the circumstances. The reason she was loitering in that exact spot was the clerk's office of the Roe Clancy Shipping and Transport Company a short distance across the cobbles. Or, to be more precise, the fellow hunched in the farthest left window of said building, bent over his quill and inkpot and oblivious to the world. She had first seen him one foggy evening when Seamus had tasked her with tipping a sack full of body parts over the port wall. The man had emerged, locked up the office and hurried off up the street. She was struck with his unassuming devotion to his work and his simple humanity. He was an astonishingly unremarkable individual, always wrapped in long wool scarf and wearing the same scuffled winkle pickers, small moon glasses, and side-swept mousy hair. And so long as there was a shred of sunlight, he would be in that office, hunched over his ledger. Molly found herself sympathetic to the endless labour and the thanklessness of it all, first in and last out, and most likely for a pittance of a wage and scant recognition if any at all, notion she strongly identified with both before and after her death. There had been no more sacks of chopped-up bodies to be disposed of, but Molly had found herself down by the Roe Clancy Shipping and Transport Company more and more often, simply lingering in the shadows of the warehouses across the way and watching him work. She had no idea what he did for the company, although she suspected it was some form of bookkeeping or accountancy. She didn't even know his name, but she was fascinated by him all the same. His hair was getting long, she noticed. She could probably have cut that for him, if he'd a notion. As she watched, it fell over his eyes, and he swished it away with a habitual gesture. She would have been happy to do that for him, too. It was a pleasant fiction, this daydreaming. She was surprised by the eagerness she felt at such a vocation 
spending her day at his shoulder, watching him work, and parting his hair for him when it got in the way of his ledger. She speculated on what colour his eyes were. Brown like hers, most likely, but blue would be nice too. Or maybe green. She chewed her lip, pondering. Molly, a muffled voice interrupted. The world returned with a bump. Molly, where are we? Nowhere, Philip, she said. Go back to sleep. Are we at the library yet? No, we're not at the library. I'm... She paused. What could she tell him? That she was mooning over some mystery shipping clerk while her master was waiting impatiently halfway across the city. Molly, Seamus is not going to be pleased, Toomers continued. Molly bristled at the thought, filled with savage satisfaction, rather than the terror that would once have struck her. Let him hang around and fume, she thought. Perhaps he would stop taking her for granted if she didn't come running every time he whistled. Good, she heard herself say. Good. Molly! Tumors sounded shocked. Well, what do you expect, Philip? She said. He murdered me and brought me back as his undead servant. And look at you. You're a head in a bag. You don't owe him any loyalty. I was dead already, Molly, the velvet bag said. I'd be the first to admit that my predicament is far from ideal. But even this is preferable to the grave. But I wasn't dead, the ex-reporter said, as much to herself as Philip. I had a life and a career, and he took those things away from me. She looked across the street at the window and the clerk as a single tear rolled down her white cheek. He took everything away from me. You are bound to him, Molly, Tumors reminded her. He brought you back. And made a botched job of it, she retorted, looking down at her dress. I'll never get these stains out. That may be. But he is your master, and you must serve him. Molly said nothing. She had believed that for a long time. A time before the Gorgon's tear, when she was weak and disorientated and retching blood. She had felt the truth of it right at her core. If Seamus had told her to throw herself into a furnace, she'd have obeyed without question. But now it felt like that leash had loosened. Seamus hadn't brought her back that second time. The Gorgon's tear had. She stayed with Seamus through loyalty and the understanding that her old life was gone beyond recall. But as time passed and her confidence grew, she had begun to realise that she didn't really need Seamus at all. It was he that needed her. What are you going to do? Tumas asked when it became clear that Molly wasn't going anywhere. I'll think of something, she said. It was all going to hell in a handcart, and Molly was to blame. Things had started promisingly enough. The wagon had drawn up outside Forbes and Clark, and a burly guardsman with a scattergun had hopped down and unlocked the back of the wagon with a key from a ring on his belt. Two more guardsmen had exited through the armoured door in the rear of the wagon and carried four heavy leather bags between them into the bank. A half-dozen of Seamus's rotten bells had followed them in with stiff approximations of an alluring sachet. The rest had converged on the opened wagon, with its two remaining guards and driver, while Seamus swaggered across the street, his accompanying Bell's cool hand through his arm. 
Top of the morning to you, big fella. He'd called to the burly scattergun guardsman, intending to waylay the man and secure the keys for himself before anything could go wrong. The scattergunner had taken one look at the top hat, heavy felt coat and boots and massive pistol in his free hand and had brought up his gun with a shout of alarm. Gentleman's got something for you, my dear, Seamus said briskly and ducked behind his slack-faced lady friend as a scattergun roared. He felt the undead girl take the full brunt of the buckshot and she flopped over in a silk heap. While the guardsman's expression collapsed into shock, at having inadvertently killed a parasol-sporting lady, Seamus returned fire with his hand cannon. The huge bore pistol boomed like a warship's cannon, and the guardsman executed a very passable backflip before hitting the ground with a red hole in his chest the size of an apple. And that was where things started to unravel faster with alarming rapidity. Bells dragged the driver off the wagon's bench, but not before he had drawn a clockwork pistol and started firing wildly. Rapid gunfire and angry shouting had also started up inside the bank, sending bullets through the windows and across the street. And then another two scattergun-wielding guardsmen ran out of the back of the wagon. In seconds, the air was full of lead hornets and Seamus was forced to run for cover while bullets nipped holes in his coattails. Locks and saints, he hollered ducking behind a gnarled knotwood tree while trunks of bark and wet wood exploded around him. Would you look at this now? The rotten bell staggered into the fray, but the guardsmen from the wagon's rear had none of the chivalrous sensibilities of their fallen compatriot. One shot a bell full in the face and dropped her in a cloud of putrid flesh and face powder. Another had her slender legs blown off at the knees by a swarm of buckshot and toppled to the ground. She gamely crawled another few yards until she was given another barrel in the back of the head, and that was that. Seamus attempted to even up the odds by shooting a scattergunner in the back while he was wrestling with a hissing bell. The bullet struck home, but there was a spark and a flash, and although the man staggered, he didn't go down. The struggling continued unabated, and Seamus saw the glint of metal through his torn duster. The scattergunners were wearing metal breastplates under their uniforms. Well, sure if that ain't a dastardly thing to do, he grumbled. Here's a decent fella trying to shoot a man in the back to give his ladies a chance, and the slide dog's wearing an armoured vest. He shook his head in remorse. What's the world coming to, I ask ye? He went for a headshot instead, squinting and projecting his tongue from the corner of his mouth. The man and his bell staggered in a rough circle like drunken waltzes, but he saw his window and fired. In the aftermath of the muzzle flash, he saw his fighting bell's head smash like a pumpkin as a huge bullet tore through it. Sorry about that floor, my dear, he said with a wince as a dead bell slumped against the guardsman's chest. The man shoved the corpse away in surprise and looked back to where Seamus was peering from around the tree. His scattergun roared, and the hatter flinched as more wood smashed to splinters around him. Oh, yes, very nice, he shouted back. I'm doing your job for you, and that's the thanks we get, is it? The gunfire had intensified inside the bank, and then one of his bells pitched through the window, landing in the street like a straw dummy with a dozen smoking holes in her. 
it would appear that the bank robbery was not going quite to plan. The remaining bells on the street had managed to pull one of the armoured scattergunners down and were beating him with their fists, but the other gunner had ducked back inside the wagon and slammed the heavy door shut after him. Seamus cursed, realising belatedly that the bells lacked the initiative and reflexes to get the job done by themselves. Where was that blasted squid pidge when he needed her? He ran to the back of the wagon, giving the struggling scattergunner a hefty kick on his way past, but the armoured door was securely locked. He looked around for the keys, but they were nowhere to be seen. The burly guardsman he'd shot had vanished into thin air. Where's that slippery bugger got to, then? He muttered to himself. There was another volley of gunfire from inside the bank, and another of his bells flopped half out of the broken window, hanging like a marionette with its strings cut. Sure, and it's not going as well as we'd hoped, Seamus lamented. The bank was lost, but there would still be Scrip in the wagon. If he could get the door open. He pursed his lips and whistled. It was time for his secret weapon. Of course, most civilizations used a different yardstick to measure their sophistication by, but life in the Waitiki tribe was far from typical, Philip was saying. He had been droning on for some time about his travels and exploits, which, while no doubt interesting to another historian, had very nearly killed off Molly for the third time. She had been tempted to leave him in his bag and move out of earshot, but it would have been asking a lot of the dock workers to ignore a severed head chattering animatedly about extinct foreign cultures, and so she bore it heroically. The clerk was still there, still poring over his work. She watched him periodically dip the nib of his pen into the inkwell, scrape it twice, and then scribble another line. Every once in a while he would turn a page, and Molly would catch a glimpse of blocks of dense economical script with row upon row of numbers. None of it made any sense to her, but she took some comfort in the knowledge that the clerk seemed to have the matter well in hand. The most amusing part was that Montgomery and Billiers had unwittingly labelled the pots as 13th century, Philip was saying. It was only when the curator came around to check the exhibit that he noticed the tags were the wrong way around, and in fact the pots were late 12th century. How we laughed. He was so diligent, Molly mused to herself. He barely took time to stop and stretch before getting back to it. She liked that about him. She liked his industry, but caught herself wondering if a man like that had time for anything else in his life. Or perhaps he had embraced his work wholeheartedly because he had nothing else to take up his time. Perhaps if he encountered something new and distracting, he might pour all of his attention and devotion into that. She chewed her lips some more. A fascinating piece, and indelible evidence of the Machu Picchu's belief in a solar deity more than 300 years before that academic hack Wrigley's claim in his absurd paper Beliefs of the Picchu of the Amazon Basin, published in 1851. Philip was saying, I met the man once, you know. It was at a convention in Venezuela on bone sculptures of... Blue eyes, Molly decided. She hoped he had blue eyes. In retrospect, Seamus should have seen it coming. 
When his special project lumbered out of the shadows, he'd thought it was in the bag. He'd taken the body parts of three of his biggest and strongest girls, and, with some guidance from that lunatic McMorning, had fused the muscle and bone structure of their upper torsos together. The result was a wire-bound hulk, with arms like tree trunks, and shoulders that looked wide enough to carry a horse without breaking a sweat. There's my girls, he beamed proudly as the huge abomination came to a halt a few feet from the wagon and looked down at him with a slack grey face. My Lucy Sue Ellie, you know what to do, girls. Two huge meaty fists, laced with ragged stitching and bits of metal, reached out and grasped the lip of the wagon door. Muscles bulged, and the iron frame began to squeal in protest. That's it, gals, he encouraged. Rip that door off for your Uncle Seamus. Make me a wealthy man. The sounds of tortured metal grew louder, and the edge of the door started to peel back fractionally. You know, Seamus said critically as a huge figure strained, I'm not so sure the dress was a good idea. It was the click that alerted him. He had just enough time to see the twin scatter gun mouths emerging from the shadows under the wagon before a blast of orange fire lit up the giant bell and her head shattered into chunks of flesh, bone and two rather apathetic eyes. It was the burly guardsman. He turned out to be considerably less dead than Seamus had first thought and had managed to crawl under the wagon during the confusion whereupon he had blown the head off of Seamus's secret weapon. "'Tis a brave thing that ye have done for your guild, boyo," he said with a philosophical air as he stepped on the weapon barrel while the other man was trying to reload. "'And I'd doff me hat to you if there were time for it. But the truth of the matter is, ye've only gone and killed yourself slower." He drew a long, sharp knife from his belt and grinned. "'I'll do my best to make it last.' if that's a consolation at all. Right then, the doors to the bank burst open to expel two guardsmen and half a dozen bank security men holding rifles, all of them shouting and looking more like a lynch mob than a responsible arm of the law. Seamus became aware of two things at the same time. One, there were now far too many hostile men with guns on the street for his liking, and two, his giant bell had managed to bend the door back enough to open a narrow gap into the wagon before being separated from her remaining faculties. Chorus line, ladies, he shouted, thrusting his arm through the buckled door and grasping desperately for some kind of payoff. The fighting bells immediately lurched to their feet, abandoning the surprised scattergunner and driver and scuffling into an untidy line between Seamus and the gunman. They stared in raw astonishment as the undead women began a shambolic, high-kicking can-can dance. One man was smacked in the head with a flying shoe. Seamus's fingers closed around a leather bag, and he yanked it free with a cry of triumph. The blatant robbery sparked the men into action, and they opened up, blasting at the top-hatted maniac as he made a run for it with his bag. The bells somehow managed to get in the way and were blown to pieces, still gamely high-kicking as they toppled. By the time the men had shot and clubbed their way through the rotten vaudeville act, Seamus was long gone. Molly had been humming to herself and swinging her legs for some time, when the clerk finally put down his pen 
wrapped his long scarf around his neck and blew out the paraffin lamp. It was almost fully dark and the dock was quiet, the sailors and labourers long since having retired to the nearest tavern. Soft sounds of snoring came from Philip's bag and, other than the distant rush of river against the jetty pilings, all was quiet. Had it still been beating, Molly's heart would have quickened at the sight of the clerk leaving, but as it was, she had to settle for shifting nervously when he emerged to lock up the office. She moved a bit further into the shadows to be more unobtrusive, but quickly regretted it when he rattled the door handle, pocketed the key, and set off back up the street towards the city. She stepped out of the shadows to watch him go, wringing her parasol anxiously. She wanted to call out to him, but it would have been an absurd thing to do. The fantasy had been fun, but the likelihood of a successful relationship proposal from a dead woman was unlikely to say the least. The clerk strode briskly up the slope away from the dock. And then he did something strange. He stopped in the middle of the lane. Molly watched anxiously. It was clear that there was some sort of internal struggle going on, that he was debating something. The clerk turned around and looked back down the hill, straight at the shadows where she waited. She very nearly ducked back on reflex, but somehow managed to stand her ground. The figure on the hill hesitated, turned away, turned back, then squared his shoulders and marched back down the hill. He walked fast, and it was scant seconds before he was standing right in front of her. It was dark down by the warehouses, and she wished the moon had been brighter. As it was, she couldn't see much more than the outline of his face. Why are you always watching? He asked. His voice was softer than she'd expected, and his accent was funny. European, perhaps. Molly said nothing, shrinking back a fraction deeper into the shadows, and painfully conscious of the dried blood on her dress. I see you almost every day, miss, the clerk said. Sometimes you just sit there the whole day, watching. Do I know you? Are you waiting for someone? The undead reporter fingered her parasol, trying to think fast. Well, she started. So there she is, cried Seamus, as he strode out of the darkness. Been searching the whole day, and where do I find her? Down by the river, of course. Been fishing, have we? He was grinning at her, but Molly knew him better than that. There was a smouldering rage just beneath the surface that would burst into flame at any second. Hello, Seamus. The hatter was looking the clerk up and down with an unimpressed air. Fishing not your strong suit, eh, Molly? He snorted. Got yourself a minnow by the looks of it. I'd throw that one back if I were you. The clerk was looking baffled. What do you want, Seamus? Molly asked. What do I want? The hatter laughed. Oh, nothing, Molly, dear. I was just wondering where you was while me and the bells were getting shot to pieces by the guild. You'll maybe not remember our date at the library earlier today. What with being so busy and all? I remembered, she said. Ah, Seamus nodded, throwing down a leather bag at her feet. Stacks of blank paper slips and rubber Forbes and Clark stamps spilled out. Good girl. Here's your share of the spoils, by the way. Pity you missed it. We might have made an actual profit. He still seemed to be operating under the assumption that she was his property. 
she decided to take the bull by the horns. I'm not yours to command any more, Seamus, she said. Is that so? He whispered, and there was a dangerous glint in his eye. Molly could see other shapes moving out of the darkness. Rotten bells, at least a dozen of them. Something else, lower and quicker, skirted around the pack, and a warm leather dome pushed against her hand. Ponto. I've been thinking, and I've realised something that maybe you missed, she said. I was yours once, just like all these other enslaved women you surround yourself with. But you let me die again, Seamus. You let me die. And you didn't bring me back. The Hatter snorted with laughter. Nor? No. Molly reached out and tapped Seamus's forehead, tapping the bullet wound. Remember this? The Hatter flinched, and something like an animal snarl flickered across his face. You were dead, just like me, she said, and the Gorgon's tear brought you back, just like me. You're mine, Seamus snapped, his joviality gone. You'll always be mine, Molly. Not anymore, she said, shaking her head. I answer to the power of the Gorgon's tear now. She paused for the impending explosion. And so do you. Seamus snapped. His arm shot up to wrap around her throat and choke whatever passed for life out of her. But his face suddenly contorted in pain and the green of his eyes flashed with unnatural brilliance. He clapped a hand to his forehead, cursing. See what I mean? You think you're safe, Molly, dear? Seamus growled. This thing you stuck in my head might not let me kill you personally, but there's plenty more will do it for me. Molly turned to look at the crowd of silent bells. They were all Seamus's creation, but she had a theory about that too. I don't think they will, she said. I think they like me better than you. Leek's got nothing to do with it, he spat. Bells, pull this ungrateful brat's arms and legs off, or you want to hear a scream. The bells shuffled in the darkness, but none of them stepped forward. Kill her, I says, Seamus roared, stabbing a finger at Molly. Kill her! The silence drew out awkwardly as Molly waited, and the bells stalled uncertainly. Why, you ungrateful bunch of witches, he swore turning to glower at the sheepish undead. All this time, all this time. Molly might have toppled over then with sheer nervous exhaustion, but forced herself to remain outwardly stoic. She'd had no proof that Seamus's bells wouldn't attack her other than a gut feeling. One of the few things she had left in this world was her affinity with her fellow undead, and the more tragic the individual, seemingly the stronger the bond. Like her faithful Ponto, the necrotic machine currently nuzzling her leg, and Philip's severed head, whom anyone else would have thrown into the river after the first hour of brain-freezing monologue. They were life's hard-luck cases, big players in a tragic comedy of undeath, and, for whatever reason, she seemed to have emerged as their ambassador. I'll, I'll be off now, said the clerk. With Seamus's explosive appearance, Molly had forgotten all about him. Trembling with rage, Seamus turned on him, his teeth bared in the dark. So this is the reason my bank job went to the wall, is it? He hissed, this lanky cretin, 
Well, at least there's something I can do about that. He drew a shiny, small-caliber pistol from his belt as quick as a snake, but for perhaps the first time in or after her life, Molly was quicker. She spun and threw her arms around the clock, just as the gun went off with a loud crack and lit the whole lane with a flash of yellow. The bullet impact felt like a fist against her ribs, and she staggered. But somehow, between the two of them, they managed to retain an untidy sort of balance. There was an immediate scuffle and much cursing behind her. When she turned to look, Seamus was being manhandled by his bells, snarling and kicking his oversized boots while they grappled him into submission. Let me go, you treacherous Jezebels, he was shouting. I'll have the lot of you minced. Let me go. Ladies, Seamus is not safe here, she said as a clerk helped to steady her. Molly knew she couldn't make the bells turn on Seamus outright, but they could be misled. Would you take him somewhere safe, please? Still cursing and howling in fury, the struggling hatter was dragged back up the lane by the cluster of bells, and although not one of them said a word, there was a certain satisfied air about the whole endeavour. Miss, the clerk was saying, sounding very alarmed. Miss, you've been shot, miss. Molly could feel the bullet rattling around inside her, but the new hole in her dress was a distant concern, and she couldn't stop herself from smiling. For just a moment, the world had been illuminated by the gunshot. Everything had been bathed in bright daylight for just a single instant. But that had been enough for Molly to see. Blue eyes. The clerk had blue eyes. That's it for another episode of The Weird Chronicles. Join us next time for more tales of action and adventure.